0: All right, so we're continuing on in Galatians class. By the way, there's, I haven't checked recently. I think the last time I checked, there were 12 books in a box right by the door. So if you need a book, they're right in the back. And let me know if they're running out. Hopefully we won't run out again. I've already made two orders, but I can make a third if that happens. Uh, We also have PDFs online, so you can get those as well. So last week, I'm going to go through a review. If you have questions or comments about anything from last week, this is the time to be thinking about them. So we talked about a few passages and a few things that Paul references here. And I'll tell you, chapter three is by far the hardest. If you look at how, you might be looking at the timing and saying, well, we don't have much time left in the class. We're only in chapter three. It goes way faster once you get past chapter three. Chapter three is just dense. And if you really understand those passages in their context, Paul just quotes like five words. And then you come back and you have to study those five words in their context in the Old Testament. You bring them forward, it suddenly makes a lot more sense what's going on there, which is why it's so slow. So a few things that he mentioned is that he talks about how the faithful are sons, okay? So it's not, you're not marked out by the law, you're marked out by faith. And Paul goes all the way back, he says, this is, precedes the law itself, okay? It goes back all the way to Abraham. He then refers to Genesis 15, where he says, it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And can you go back and read that in context? And so when you read, especially about how in the ancient Near East, how they would do treaties, What's going on there makes a lot of sense. It was splitting of the animals where there's basically a curse in a certain sense. The a cursing. Remember, this is a big part of Galatians as well and in the Torah, that there was a picture here of death. You take these animals, you split them, you lay them out on the ground, and they're all just sitting there bleeding. And so it's a picture of death, which is why Genesis 15 mentions the animals coming in and picking at the flesh. And, and so it's a picture of death, but... What happens is it's supposed to be that the parties will pass between the animals saying that if I break this covenant, I will be made like these animals. I will do this covenant or I will die. I will forfeit my life. I will will pay with blood. And you would expect both God, God being the covenant between God and Abraham, the greater party generally goes first. The greater party obviously would be God. And it says in here there's a smoking fire pot and and a torch that go between the animals. Okay, that makes sense. God is represented by fire and smoke, in many cases in the Old Testament. And then you would expect Abraham to walk between the animals, saying, if I break the covenant, I will pay with my blood. But Abraham doesn't do that, right? And so, remember, Paul's quoting this because he says, the gospel was preached to Abraham. And you're thinking, the gospel? How did the gospel get preached? How did he know the, the gospel? But actually, when you understand the context, this fits. Part of the difficulty here, too, is that if you you have to kind of, under, to really make a lot of sense, if it really lands, is if you read other ancient Near East texts about how these treaties were made, and I, we were accelerating through the class, we were trying to get through stuff. I originally designed this curriculum for a quarter, so we're trying to go through it fast, but if you actually read some of the ancient Near East texts, I, I have a whole bunch of references, but the one that made the most sense, that if you understand this, explains Genesis 15, is there's, there's this treaty between the king of Assyria and this king named Mata'ilu. And it sounds, if you think about the context, this fits what's going on here in Genesis 15. So they bring out this spring lamb, and he, brought it, he brings it to sanction the treaty, because this is the signing of this covenant. And then he says, If Mata'ilu sins against this treaty made under the oath, then this spring lamb will not return to its fold, because it will die. And he goes on, they, they kill the lamb, he, and he says that. Together, Matailu, with his sons, his daughters, and the people of the land will not return to his country, will not return to his country again. And he said the head of this lamb is not the head of the lamb. It's the head of Mate-ilu. Well, Of course, it's not really. It's a lamb, right? It's a dead lamb that's been cut. But he's saying it's association between them. And it is the, he said it's the head of the sons, his officials, and the people of the land. If Matailu sins against this treaty, so may, just as the head of this spring lamb is, cut, is torn off, the head of Mata'ilu will be torn off. Right? That's this whole idea of a treaty. So it's like you, you keep this treaty, okay? or you will, pay with your, you will forfeit your life. And if you read Jeremiah 34, verses 18 through 20, you'll see he refers to the same idea. And he talks about how the Jews, who had not kept the covenant, he's like, do you remember when you passed between the animals? And then he describes it as a picture of death. He says, you're going to be made, you're going to pay with your life because you, you made this covenant. And the birds of the heaven, and there's that picture again, will pick at the body. So again, you pay with your blood. And so that's what he's bringing up. This fits with all these passages. And then he quotes, Paul then quotes Genesis 18, where he talks about how all the nations will be blessed. And if you go back and read that in context, the context seems to be that God is describing something about how the nations will be blessed. It's the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. And I think that what Paul's trying to get you to see here is that Abraham actually tries to defend the people. He doesn't want Sodom and Gomorrah destroyed. I guess it fits with Paul saying, he's like, you want to have faith, but you have to have faith like Abraham. He's the prototype. And it, it wouldn't make much sense if Abraham was supposed to be the one through which all nations would be blessed, if Abraham just hated all the nations, right? It wouldn't really fit. And so Paul's trying to draw a distinction between those who claim they know the law and those who, when you understand the context, you don't have the same type of faith that Abraham. You're not thinking about this in the same way. Uh, a second argument somebody could make, I mean, I just, what, I try to come up with many possible arguments of what people could make out of these passages. I guess the second best argument somebody could make is like, Abraham wasn't actually worried about the nations in that passage. He was just trying to save Lot and his family I, for a whole host of reasons. I don't actually think that works. Uh, one of them would be, if you look at it, if people say that it's really just about Abraham trying to save Lot's family, first of all, Abraham doesn't say that, he seems to be saving the city, so first of all, there's that. The second thing is, is that, why would he be trying to save the city? Well, the argument is he's trying to save the city because Lot's and his family is there. Like, the, the fate of Sodom and Gomorrah is tied with Lot, right? That's That would be the argument. But here's the thing, it's not. We know this because Sodom and Gomorrah was destroyed. Lot's family was not. They were extracted from it. Now, you could try to still recover the argument and say, well, but maybe Abraham was confused. Like, but again, the text doesn't necessarily say that, and so I think it would be better just to go with the straightforward readings. That he's just trying to save the city, okay? And also explains, because God explains to him. He's like, should we tell Abraham that what's going to happen to Sodom and Gomorrah? And I think it's probably a rhetorical question. He says, well, he is going to be the one through which all nations will be blessed. So it seems to be that the context is all about all of the nations. It's not just about Lot and his family. It's a bigger picture there. And again, that would fit what Paul's saying, okay? He brings that whole passage in. And he's like, listen, guys, if, you're, if you want to go back to the law and you want to go all the way back, you go all the way back to Abraham, you're going to see a different picture. You're going to see that the gospel was back there. and Everybody gets in. And then you talk about the, the curses. What does curses mean? Well, this is the curses of the Mosaic Covenant. Okay, there's a curse there. You have to do the law or you will get punished. So what do we do with that? Okay, well... This is going to fit when he goes on forward and saying, if you go back to the law, you have to keep the whole law or you get the curses. Or there's another way. Okay, so people are going back and saying, we well, need to go back to the opponents. We don't have what the opponents were saying exactly, but they're almost certainly saying, go back to the, the law and you'll get all these blessings. He's like, there's two sides to that, right? There's the blessings and there's the curses. Okay, it, the, the curses apply if you don't keep it. The blessings only apply if you keep it. So <laughs> that's, that's the problem. And they don't keep it. Even they don't suggest keeping the whole law. All right. Questions or comments on that? Okay. I'm going to stop asking after the review because nobody's called. Which is okay. I just don't waste the time. Okay. Uh, so I think that's it. Let's go ahead, and we're going to have the prayer, and then we'll get started. Let's
1: pray. Oh God in heaven, we're so grateful for the opportunity that we have this morning to be able to open your holy word and to um, and to take a look at your message to to the Galatians. And as we study this morning this idea of, of the law bringing a curse, it just reminds us how grateful we are to be not under law but under your mercy and your grace and the fact that we can be justified by faith. Help us to understand this concept of of curses and blessings and to realize that that without your mercy and grace, we would have no hope because there's no way that we can um, keep the law perfectly as would be required. Uh, Be with Luke as he presents the lesson today. Um, We pray that we will have open hearts and minds and that we will see your truth in all things. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.
0: Amen. Josephus records that there was an event that caused a whole bunch of people to be scared in the first century. He says that there, in the middle of the night, there was a star that showed up. He said it was resembling a sword which stood over the city of Jerusalem. It was in the middle of the night, he said, but it was so bright, he said it was like it was daylight over the temple. And he said it lasted for half an hour. And then he says something other, another thing that happened weird which was that the eastern gate of the inner court of the temple, he said it's made with brass, it's armed with iron, it takes with difficulty, shut by 20 men, it suddenly just opens up. And then he goes on and he says, then there's these continual lightnings, he said there were thunderings, there were earthquakes, and all this stuff was happening, and he said, we took it as an, an indication that some destruction was coming upon men. What's strange is Josephus isn't the only one who records this. Cornelius Tacitus, a Roman historian, says almost the same thing. And he says that Jews took this as something bad's going to happen. He records that this happened just before the destruction of the temple. Okay, I am the type, when people say, oh, I saw stars, and, you know, that just sounds like, okay, whatever, you're you're just making stuff up. But here's the weird thing. Jesus, in Luke 21, when he records that the temple is going to be destroyed, in verse 11, he says that you will see fearful sights and great signs from heaven. And he gives a whole bunch of things that he says is going to happen. He tells the apostles, he says, this temple, it is coming down. Not one stone is going to be standing on it. If you go back and you continue to read what happens when the, the temple gets destroyed, it is just eerie. First of all, Josephus says that nobody wanted the temple destroyed. He said, Rome had, General Titus was told that he needs to get the temple for Rome. Okay, so they need to take ownership of it because it had a bunch of expensive material and they wanted to take it kind of as a marker of what they had. But he said that they had started a fire when they struggled to take the city, they started a fire in one of the gates and one of the soldiers decided to start something else on fire near the temple and it, the fire just kept going and they couldn't stop. So Titus said, stop the fire, right? Remember we're supposed to take this for the, for the Caesar that he wants us to take it. Nobody could stop it. The Jews didn't want the fire. The Romans didn't want the fire. And Josephus says it went on almost as if under it was a divine fury, like God. He says that he thinks God had caused this to happen because he said God was with the Romans. It wasn't. He wasn't with the Jews. As the description goes on, he then describes that the people became so in want of food because the, the Zealots there had destroyed the food supplies in the temple because they wanted the people to go out and fight the Romans. So they didn't want them just to sit in their little temple, sit in the city, eating the food that was there. They wanted to go out there and fight. So they destroyed the food. And the people began to, they didn't have enough food. And then he says, there's this woman named Mary. And she was a kind of a, she wasn't just some random person, sophisticated, gentle person. And she became so in need of food that she killed her own child and ate it. The thing is, is if you read Deuteronomy 28, Deuteronomy 28, says, like if the Jews don't, if you don't keep the law, this is what's going to happen. And one of the things it says is in verse 20, chapter 28, verse 56 and 57, it says the most gentle and refined woman will eat her own child. This is how bad it's going to get. And that's exactly what Josephus says happened. And I'm saying all of this to say that when Jesus said that the temple is going to be destroyed, He's saying that because he's connecting it to the whole big picture of the curse clauses from the Old Testament. That's what it said. And Josephus, I, I'm, I suspect Josephus is probably telling that story because he saw it happen. And he's like, this is exactly what God said back in Deuteronomy 20. And Josephus is not Christian. And even he says that this is what's going to happen. Right? That's the destruction of the, the curse clauses. And that's why Paul says, don't go back to the law. Okay? There's got to be a way out of this. And there is. Okay. And this is what the way out of it is that God took away the law and therefore took away the curse clauses. And so that's all in the background. And I think that's why Jesus explains why the temple is going to be destroyed. It's not just some random prophecy. It actually fits into his story because the temple was no longer clean because he was the temple. Remember, He says he was the temple. So that old temple, that's not the temple. okay? And it really was corrupt by that point. And so this is God working to say, that system is over. And Paul's telling the Galatians, that system is over. There's nothing to go back to. Does that make sense? Any questions or comments on it? Yes, ma'am. He says that also we are now the temple. Right, this is true. Okay. We are the temple. If <laughs> we want to be
2: covered in the blood of Jesus, we have to become that temple the same as he is the temple. So we can't go back
0: to the old temple the I like how you put it, but the temple was covered in blood, but we are covered in Jesus' blood. And this makes sense because you see this association with, and we're going to talk about this today, the association with our story and Jesus' story. Paul uses the phrase in Christ over 200 times. I, I tried to count them, and I got lazy because at some point he just says in him, and in him means Christ, and you have to go do an eye. I'm like, okay, it's over 200 times. I'm not going to try to split that every on that. It's a lot. And he talks about, in Galatians 2.20, about how our identity is in Christ. When Christ died, we died with him, in a certain sense. Which fits what you're saying here, right? Yeah, good point. Anything else on that? All right, so we're going to, it's on the study guide, I can't remember if I said this, it's page 54, we're going to pick up in chapter 3, verses 10 through 14. So let me go ahead and read that. Verse 10. For all who rely on the doing of the works of the law are under a curse because it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not keep on doing everything written in the book of the law. Now it is clear that no one is justified before God by the law because the righteous one will live by faith. But the law is not based on faith. But the one who does the works of the law will live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, because it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs in a tree. In order that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham would come to the Gentiles, so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit by faith. Okay, what kind of things did you notice, anything that stood out to you, or questions you have about that? Yes sir.
1: The idea of the curse comes up several times in this. And on um, first reading of this, that's not a common thought. I mean, Christians aren't, you know, it's like what's what's this curse thing? What's the big deal with the curse thing that's going on? And he kind of makes a big deal out of that and how it was taken away. So the question I think, the obvious question was What's this curse, and, and why did it need to be dealt
0: with? Yeah, and I think part of what we struggle with is that the curse comes up over and over and over again. I can't remember who it was that said it, that said it, but something about how we tend to read over the things we don't understand. We're like, I don't know what that means, and you just move on to the next verse. You know, we get to the genealogies and the gospels, and, I don't know, and we just move on. <laughs> That's what we do, and the I think we kind of do that with curse, especially because the word curse in English. I think means something a little bit different than when you read it in context of the Old Testament, which is curse means covenant punishment, right? And blessings would be covenant rewards. But yeah, it's a big deal. He keeps repeating it. It's like you're going back to this. Do you you know what this is? (coughs) What else? The law was not kept by anyone except one, right? There's only one person who's been able to do this, which goes back to the whole point of identity, right? You, you found in the one who actually keeps the law. So, you know, there is that aspect. But how many years of failure of Israel, inability to keep the law, do you need before you think, you know what, I don't think people are gonna get this, right? How many years? I mean, this is that the whole point. You go, do you remember those, that prophet? Where the prophet came back and said, hey guys, you know, God's here to check in on you, and everything's great. That didn't happen. I just didn't happen. They came back, and were like, so we got to talk. It's like, oh, yet again, you know? I, the best you could hope for is that they actually changed their mind, but it was, it was never good news, right? How many years of that before we have to finally realize? There's a lesson to learn here. What else? Yes, David. Yeah, that's a good point. He doesn't say it here. Cursed for himself. It's cursed for us. And in fact, it wouldn't make any sense if he had his own sins. He couldn't have been the perfect right sacrifice. There's something about the sacrifices. You know, you not supposed to bring the lame one, You're supposed to bring the best of the best, if you will. Right. This makes sense. It's all looking forward to him. Yeah. Good point. Yes, sir. Yeah, good point, because he does. That's exactly what he's doing. He's setting up a contrast here. Okay, so are you saved by law or are you saved by faith? There's these clusters of phrases where it's like it's one or the other. And he's trying to show that you go back to Abraham. This is why Abraham is so instructive, because Abraham, it was reckoned to him as righteousness, not the keeping of the law. The law didn't even exist. It was his faithfulness. And in fact, that's actually, in a certain sense, what God had always wanted. And I think that's why when you go back to the curse clauses and you read Deuteronomy, it makes so much sense, because... Neither did Moses think that the Israelites were going to be able to do this perfectly, which is why he says when both of these things happen, he says, and he qualifies it, the blessings and the curse. So you guys are going to do this right, and then you're going to do it very wrong. So Moses knew how this was going to go and somehow was looking forward to God to do something in the future. So Moses was actually consistent in a certain sense with Abraham. And people wanting to go back to the law forever were inconsistent with both. Yes, ma'am.
2: Through faith. So the Gentiles are going to receive through Abraham, sounds to me like it, the Spirit of God and the Spirit of faith
0: versus the Spirit of all. Right. Right. I think you're onto something there, right? There is a bit of a, a maybe a surprising turn in verse 14 when he says, as a result of all of this, it's that, and he starts talking about how all the nations are going to get God's spirit, right? But remember, too, how this fits, because the big picture here is he's trying to explain why Gentiles don't have to go back to the law, because that, that, that you said, he's like, he doesn't say so that you get the law, right? It's like you get something, something bigger, actually, than the law here, which is, I think, a good way to put it, because he's going to go on and ask the question, well, but why did God have this law in the middle? Because it, did, it seems like a weird sidestep, like, why have this middle step? So that we all become one nation. Yes, I think that's a good way to put it. It's saying move away from the law to the spirit. Right? That's, that right there is the big picture. And I think there's a tendency, we were talking about this yesterday, how sometimes we, we fail to understand that ultimately the big picture of the Bible is that the giver is the gift, right? The rewarder is is the reward. Sometimes we kind of skip past but It's like, well, God's going to give me that phrase, We, we use, some people use it, and I, it's not wrong, okay? We'd say we're going to go to heaven. The phrase shows up shockingly few times in the New Testament. I, I checked it, I only find one, and it didn't even really fit the way we use it, although the concept's there, so I don't have a problem with it. But we get so focused on getting to heaven, we forget that what makes heaven heaven is that it's God there. The giver is the, that's what I mean by the giver is the gift. It's the relationship that matters. And when you see that, that explains why, that's how Paul sees it. He sees it, and we're going to talk about relational terminology he uses throughout the book. It's that relationship that actually matters. And going back to the law, going back to a system, misses the point that the giver was the gift. Yes, ma'am. Yeah, I I agree, and I think that that, the idea of freedom in Christ, we have to figure out what that means, because as you pointed out, that doesn't mean we just go out and do whatever we want. And at first, that sounds really strange, because when we say freedom, that's what people mean by freedom, so I can just do whatever I want. Well, of course, there's a certain sense of which I guess that could be true, if what you want is what God wants, right? Well, then you're free to do what you want, because God can do whatever he wants, so why does God do good things? Because that's the kind of person he is. And this all makes sense when you realize it, when you get out of the checklist, and start but it's a relationship. Relationships don't work on checklists, but neither does that mean that you can do whatever you want. I mean, if, a, if somebody gets married and says, you know what, I know it's my anniversary, but I want to do what I want. I'm just going to go and just not have anything to do with my wife on the anniversary. Yeah, that's not going to end well, okay? But why would you do something on your anniversary with your spouse? Because you love them. In a relationship, this makes it, you don't need a checklist. You do what you want which is you want to be with your spouse. That's what this means. It all makes perfect sense if you think of it like a relationship, which I think is what Paul's trying to get you to see. All right, what else? So let's, so let's keep moving. And let's see what time we got. at. Oh, man, it's 9.57. Okay, let's move on. Uh, let's talk about the book of Habakkuk a bit. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to try to give you, I'm going to shortcut, I'm going to give you that big picture of Habakkuk. And as I give you the big picture, think about some things where, why Paul may be actually bringing this passage in. Look for some things that maybe seem similar to the situation here. Similar to Paul's situation, his background, the background of what's going on here. Okay, so big picture. The Habakkuk is told in these series of dialogues. So it starts off where Habakkuk is like, Israel's unfaithful. Like, have you, God, have you noticed how bad things are? Do something. Like your law is broken they're just not doing the law okay so it starts off with that background god says okay yeah i see it that's why i'm sending the babylonians the chaldeans after you and it's going to be a shock but they're going to do and then he lists out these terrible things and, and then back is like what that's even worse than i thought the chaldeans are worse than us like how does that even make any sense and then he says listen the nations are being judged accordingly And that's where that quote, where Paul's quoting, where the the just will live by their faithfulness. He says, I am going to punish, I I get it, the Chaldeans are sinful, I'm going to punish them too. God's an equal opportunity offender, they're all going to get punished on this. And finally, Habakkuk's just in shock by this, and he says, okay, but I'm going to trust God on this. He must know what he's doing. I'm shocked by that this is happening to my own people. You know, I, I can't believe the nations are going to be allowed to do this. But God seems to know what he's going to do. And so he kind of steps back from that. And that's just where the book ends. Okay, so what are some things that you could see that might be similar to the message of Habakkuk with Paul's situation and what's happening in Galatians? Yes, Rob. Now Paul's situation.
3: and so, what you have to do? And the same thing in the back. He didn't understand the end result that was going to happen. So he had to step back and say, oh, God, okay, God, I trust you. Abraham had to step back and say, okay, oh God, I trust you. I'm not perfect, but I trust you. Paul is saying, you've got to step back and trust in God. You're not going to be perfect. You're not going to keep anything perfect
0: but you trust God. He's got the big picture. I, I, that's a really good way to put it. I, I hadn't even thought of that. So, yeah, Habakkuk ends with this, God, I trust you. I just trust you. I know you're going to make this right, which applies all the way to our salvation. It applies to the situation. I, you know, Sometimes you look around, you're like, how is this going to end well? It's like, it'll end well. And that fits, because that fits the faith of Abraham. Abraham's like, I, like you pointed out, Abraham doesn't see the big picture yet, but he trusts that it's going to work out. And that also fits with Hebrews 11, the whole role of faith. Because if you look, the the thing that each one of those, the statements of faith, the situation is, they're looking forward to something in the future. They don't see it yet, but they trust that it's going to work out, just as God said. Good point. Yes, ma'am. think this is dead odd. So so Habakkuk's issue is like the Gentiles aren't keeping some sort of law. Maybe it's a universal law, which I think is probably, so they're sinners. And it's like, yeah, well, neither are you. Right? It's like, okay, the Jews aren't keeping the law and neither are the Gentiles. So (laughs) that's kind of the point. It's like the Jews and the Gentiles meet each other in the dock in the same place. Yes, sir.
1: You know, the culmination of the story is just the opposite, right? That God is not Lesser as well. Because we Good see point. Paul at the end of this section talking about how the Gentiles through Christ Jesus might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. And so, just like the Chaldeans were punished, we're going to be punished. But now through Christ, it's the opposite. Not only um, are the Gentiles going to be have the opportunity to receive faith, but the Jews who couldn't keep the law perfectly as well. So it's kind of interesting yeah. you see from one, one spectrum, one end of the spectrum to the other, from back end to the end of the
0: so he's an equal opportunity, God's an equal opportunity offender and an equal opportunity blesser. Yeah, I think that's a really good way to put it. Which sense, that's exactly what, what Peter says when he says he finds that God is not a respecter of persons, But this was always in the plan. Yeah, good point. Yes, sir. You
1: have
0: Yeah, and that was really Israel's whole problem, right? It goes all the way back to being like wishy-washy, right? They didn't really commit themselves. But faithfulness has a commitment aspect that just wasn't there. Yes, ma'am.
2: say, I will rejoice that God will deliver. Because he may not answer the way, I'm pretty sure Habakkuk didn't mean for Babylonians to come in and take over Israel and the, the Jews. So God's ways are not our ways. His ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. We're told that. So we better be ready for the answer. Yeah. And trusting God when we ask for
0: things. <laughs> That's and true. It may
2: not be the way we want
0: it. Yes, you be careful what pr- CS Lewis makes a similar point. Be careful what prayers you pray because you cringe how God may answer them. You might get what you need, but you may not get it the way that you wanted it. Which is exactly what that finds. Good point. Uh, I see. Oh, Russ. That's true. If you read Habakkuk 2, verse 4, right before it, he talks about how the proud one will be judged. And then doesn't that seem to imply that the just one, the one who lives by faith, has a certain humility? I, I think that does seem to logically follow. And that fits when you go to the Gospels when you do see it's the humble. It's the poor. Why, and it's not that Jesus is saying you have to be poor. It's that the poor tend to have a certain humility that, honestly, rich people tend to not have. I've done research. If you read the like, white papers on psychologists about how the way wealth affects people, it tends to make them prideful. This is, yeah, so that's a good point. Yes?
3: Abraham,
0: he tried to help God out a couple of times, and he just didn't work. Yeah. And so he finally realized, I'm going to trust in God to do what God said. Yeah, that's, that's what we need. And I, you're right, because you have to bring up Abraham's story is instructive in more than one way. right? The big story is we are not going to do this ourselves. So we have, this is why the humility aspect is... Really, really key. We have to wait on God. Trusting in God means He's going to do something we can't do for ourselves. And like, like Bob points out, there are times when Abraham tries to speed along the process and it just makes a mess. It just makes a mess. We're going to get to that a little bit later. All right. Let's go on to what I would say is the hardest verse that I have ever studied. I have studied this thing so ridiculously long, like, well, I'd say an unhealthy amount, but it's, it's a Bible, so it's not unhealthy, so it's fine. <laughs> so, the question I have had, and I have had this question just in the back of my head for years, which is, why does he quote Deuteronomy 21? When he says, cursed is everyone who hangs in a tree. I read that and I'm like, what? And then you go back and read Deuteronomy 21, and then I'm like, what? <laughs> Okay, I'm, just, I'm still confused. What's going on here? Uh, I, I studied this, and I will skip all this. on, I studied this passage so hard, and I just kept reading. I'm like Deuteronomy, really, and it's like it just kept fanning out because I go to Deuteronomy and I'm like, what's going on in Deuteronomy with the context of Deuteronomy? So then I got to study the whole book of Deuteronomy, and I start seeing references to other passages, and I guess through those, and it just keeps going. And it's, then all of a sudden, it started to click, what was going on. And as soon as it clicked, I started reading about, oh, this makes so much more sense. So this is my quick summary to try to make this make sense. And I've tested it. I've explained this to several people. The worry is if you do tons and tons of study on something, that it winds up not being transferable. You try to explain it to somebody, and you're like, dude, I'm totally confused now, too. Okay? <laughs> Which is not good. So I explained it to Titus. That I explained it to him and I like, that actually makes sense. I and mean, he started making his own points connecting to God. And I'm like, yes, okay, I think I finally got explained. So here's my 10-minute description of how this is working. Galatians 3.13, quotes from Deuteronomy 21, 23. Okay, when you read that, you're going to find there's actually connections to other passages. I'm not going to talk about this one a lot, but it actually refer, I think it's pointing back to the story back in Numbers 25 when Phineas winds up ending Israel's rebelliousness when they effectively go to a new religion. When I explained this to you, I explained that part to him, and he said he got confused in that. So we're going to skip that part. We can come back to it later. The other parts, what's interesting, is when you look at other similar stories that seem to have a similar connection, and when you read those, I think they had Deuteronomy 21 in the back of their head. Now, Numbers 25 was written before Deuteronomy 21. So that's part of what's a little bit strange about it. So Joshua 8, when he, he in, hangs the king of Ai after destroying the city of Ai. And 2 Samuel 21 has a, another connection. And that one is when Saul has killed the Gibeonites and the land is under a curse. And he has to go and he gives the Saul's sons, the lineage, over to the Gibeonites. They're killed and then they're hung, but they're not buried. Now that's a critical point here. That's going to, going to be a critical point too. And in 2 Samuel 18 with Absalom. Okay, so here's the thing. When you read, and there's some other ones that are related, but let's just focus largely on these three on the right. Context, of, so you've got to start off with Deuteronomy 21. If you start off with the immediate context of false quoting, you find that there's several things here. So in the context of Deuteronomy 21, it's talking about the commandment, thou shalt not kill. Now, if you said, what is like the worst commandment? You, you don't have to know anything about the Bible. What is the worst thing you could do? People are going to say murder, because it's the most heinous crime in deuteronomy 21 he's giving you various lessons but the lessons get darker so it starts off with you need to preserve life and then it deals with warfare what do you do when there's people who are affected by warfare then it goes to when you have somebody who's murdered but you can't find the murderer and he actually says well there's got to be a price to be paid for that and you can take it a half or you break its neck and then it gets to and this is the darkest one what do you do when you have an actual murderer and the i think the implication is that the, it says that if, when you hang him, now, it's not just that it's a murder worth execution, it's worth hanging as a deterrent. And if you look at other ancient Near East when they would have put somebody up on, a, on a, a pike like that, it was to send a message. It was a deterrent. Now, this has all sorts of connections to the gospel story, by the way. It's the heinous of heinous crimes. When you get to this thing, like hanging on the tree, so heinous, executing, and using as a deterrent is important. Okay, so one, it's referring to a heinous crime. Then there's this curse because he says, the man is cursed who is hung on the tree. Now he's gonna go on, he's gonna talk about curse twice in this passage. So then he talks about hanging and impaling. Now, if you read other ancient Near East documents and you look at the way this is used elsewhere, it seems to be to send a message. It's a a deterrent to others. Then he says, now this is where things get a little bit weird. He says it's gotta be buried. He says it's gotta be buried before the, the day ends. That is not how ancient Near East... When they would do this, there's a lot of, of similarities between the way this would happen in other ancient Near East kings would do, but they didn't bury them. This is unusual. This is a twist. And he says, if you don't bury them, the curse spreads on the land. The curse comes up again. And then finally, there's some sort of fulfillment. Like it, the curse doesn't go to land. Curse is on them. You bury them. It's done. Time to move on, whatever that is going on there. These five elements show up in these other stories, with those other stories I referenced. So if you go back to first, it's uh, Joshua chapter eight. And in Joshua chapter eight, he, he, they take over the king, the city of Ai, and they take the king, and they actually hang him after the fact. Okay, so first of all, is there a heinous crime? And that's why Canaan was being destroyed, that's obvious. Was, was the city of Ai under curse? Yes. Because it says, because of their sin, God was saying, destroy them to destruction. They impale the king and hang him up. Well, why do they do that? Well, he's the king. It's intended to send a message. But you notice what he does there. Now, remember, ancient East kings, people say, well, the ancient East kings used to do that. Right. They didn't bury them, generally. Joshua buries him. Why does Joshua bury him? Because he was thinking of Deuteronomy 21. The context of Joshua saying that Joshua keeps the law. But then there's the fifth element. See, when you go back and read this, I'm like, okay, I I don't know why I didn't see this before. In Joshua 8, it doesn't end there. Immediately following, he offers a peace offering. See, it's the problem has been solved. The peace peace has now been set on the land, okay? And then he he goes, he takes them up to Mount Ebal, and he gets them to reiterate the cursings and the blessings. And I think what he's doing there is he's saying, okay, you saw that man hanging on a tree. That's what happens when we sin. That's what happens when... That's what God did to them because they did all these terrible things. If we do that thing, that happens to us. He's recommitting themselves so that they don't do the same thing. That's the deterrent effect. He's using the deterrent effect, okay? So that actually fits with Deuteronomy 21, especially the burial, which is a bit weird. Then, if you keep reading this, you're going to find there's another case of this, which is that the David is dealing with the famine so if you go to second samuel verse chapter 21 he starts off he says verse one he says there's a famine okay so that, what what is the whole point of the famine that's one of the curses go back and read the curse clauses of the torah that's what it says is going to happen okay so there's that what is that that's a curse and what did he, so he, he finds out that there's this famine it's like what do i do And then he finds out well the gibeon remember when saul killed the gibeonites he had a covenant with them he violated it and then murdered them he didn't just take money from him, he murdered them. That's a heinous crime. Okay, so you, you got these two elements again. So he's like, okay, what do we got to do here? He, said, he goes to Gimme, he's like, guys, how do we solve this? And they say, well, gold or silver will not do, which kind of makes sense. He didn't take, Saul didn't take gold and silver from them. He didn't take them. He took their lives. He said, we want the sons of Saul. We want the lineage of Saul, which is his kids. So Saul, So David does this. He gets them. They hang them on the tree. And it even says there more than once before the Lord. Well, why does he put that before the Lord? And last, the Gibeonites know something about Deuteronomy 21. Right? This is done to solve this problem. Okay, that's the third element. They're h- hanged and impaled. Now, this is where it gets interesting, though. They're not buried. So they sit there, and Saul, or, uh, David finds out that th- they weren't buried. And he's like, okay, we've got to solve this. He then goes and gets the bodies. He gets the bodies, and he buries them. And it says, as the king commanded. Well, why did David command this? Because God commanded it. That's Deuteronomy 21. He knew this. And immediately after he has them buried, it says, then God listened to their prayers for the land. The famine ends. Right? So you see this fulfillment. It turns the curse around. This actually fits, weirdly enough. Is that first bell? Okay, good. The... uh, And then if you see this come up again with the story of Absalom. Now that one's a little bit ironic because I think that it's like not somebody who's actually doing it. It's almost like God's doing it. Okay, remember Absalom. First of all, he's under, he's done a heinous crime. Well, he's a rebellious son. And by rebellious son, in Deuteronomy 27, it says they're under a curse. But I don't think by rebellious son it means just a kid who does one rebellious thing and is two years old. Because that would be stoning a lot of kids there. I think he's talking about like a real rebellious son. Absalom is a rebellious son. He wants his father out of the kingship. Then, Absalom sleeps with David's wives, okay? That's also listed specifically as a curse in Deuteronomy 27. Okay, that's a heinous crime. So he does this book, so is it a heinous crime? Yes. And so he's under a curse because that's what Deuteronomy says. Now, Absalom is fleeing, right? He's got this long hair, and you gotta ask yourself, why were we being told about this weird story, right? So he's, he's fleeing, and he gets his hair stuck in a tree, the curse is the one who hangs on a tree. Think about it times in the New Testament. They, keep, they don't refer to as the cross. They refer to it as the tree. Why do they refer to it as a tree? Because I think they had Deuteronomy 21 in mind. So this Absalom is hanging from a tree. And then what happens? Well, the Joab comes up and he spears him. Okay, so he impales him. Okay, so now that's, that's three of them. And then what happens? They take him and they bury him, and they heap stones on top of him, which is exactly what happens back in Joshua 8 with the king of Ai. And, and so what happens after that? Well, the rebellion is quelled. It ends. So it actually fits. So I think why the person, why you're being told about all these details about Absalom being hung from the tree, and you're like, okay, what's, what's the big deal? Why don't you just say he's dead, and it, it ended? I think it's because they have Deuteronomy 21 in the back of their mind, okay? So does that make sense? <laughs> what questions do you have about that?
1: You just need to see that in Galatians
0: now. Okay, so, what's the link with Galatians? So that's the second part. Bob.
3: Now, it's not Jesus that did the Hameis one, it's us. Okay. And he's doing all of this. This is all happening to him for us. And so it's not something <laughs> we can really do ourselves. Because if we try to do it ourselves, we may have to do it before but we have no number five. With Jesus doing it for us, and we dying through him, we can have a number five.
0: Right. I think this is the like, thing. So that there is a heinous crime. It's not Jesus' heinous crime, though. That's the thing about it. Okay, so Israel's heinous crime. Look at Israel's history, okay? I mean, the Jews killed their own king. Okay, that's a that lot Okay, is there a heinous crime? Yes. Is there a curse of law? We said if you go back to the law, you're under a curse. That's what the law says. If you have a covenant, you have a contract, and the covenant says that if you don't do this, you get punished, then you better do it. And those punishments on that contract will affect you as long as that covenant is in, in effect, right? Okay, so you've got a curse. Jesus is hanged on a tree. Remember, they keep saying tree, they don't just say cross, they say tree in many cases in the New Testament. And it's saying, as a public message, even in Galatians, Paul said, he was crucified before your very eyes. It was this public event. Guys, you all saw this. God's sending a message here. And then he's buried. That's the item number four, okay? And then there's a fulfillment. He brings this all to fulfillment. How many times did Jesus say things like, I'm not taking away the law. I'm fulfilling the law. And so I was explaining this to Titus, how like the idea of a contract. If you have a contract and has rewards and, and punishments, but you didn't keep the contract, what happens? Well, only punishments affect. But what happens when somebody completes that contract for you? And it, people would literally write on a contract closed. I've seen it before. We'll stamp it. He's like, I'm like, what can those punishments do to you now? He said, nothing. He said, in fact, he said, you could point to that contract and you could say, it's done. And I said, right. Do you remember what Jesus' final words were on the cross? it is done. He's not just saying his life is done, he's saying this whole thing is done. The whole law has been nailed to the cross, and the whole curse clause they're gone, they can't hurt anybody anymore, because that covenant has been completed. And so these can't hurt us anymore, and the curses are taken away. Okay? I think that has kind of a tidy message that fits with a whole bunch of stuff. Mike?
1: So do you think there's a correlation to Galatians 2.20, when he says he was crucified with Christ, so now all of a sudden... The idea is we actually are the curse, right? Not Christ, but we are the curse because of our sin. But we've been crucified with him. He was able to take that curse away. And yet, because of Christ now, we have lived instead of actually died. I don't know. I just thought it was interesting that shortly after he wrote 2.20, he talks about this idea of the curse and on a tree and cross and cross.
0: Yeah, I, I think that is what he has in mind. Because he says, he says, when I'm crucified with Christ... He also said, I died to the law. I died to the law. What does that mean? Well, the, law, the law's gone, right? The law died at that point. So my relationship to the law is now gone. That's how I live. But I can only live when I have that identity with the one who has done these things for me. There's kind of a representational, in a certain sense, aspect. And I think it's true even with the king of Ai. Why did the king hang the king of Ai versus, say, just some random person? Well, there's, he's a king, right? There's some, he represents the stuff that he, as a leader, should have been solving right, for them. All right, I think I heard the other bell. So you're supposed to have like 15 minutes between the bells, you know? All right, thanks, y'all.